This is John at The Bible Project, and today on the podcast, we continue our conversation on the law. In the modern world, we understand law as a set of legal requirements that society has for us. Things you can do, things you can't do. And if someone's behavior is in question, we go to the written law and we see what it says. It's the final authority. And we call this statutory law. What we have to do is try to imagine a culture where things don't work like that. (laughs) We have to imagine where people who live in a society have a set of views about a transcendent concept of justice and goodness and righteousness. But the written law codes are not the official statement. They are illustrations written in specific times and places, but no one written statement is the final arbiter or word. It's a statement that participates in a long history of statements. This is really hard for us to appreciate, but imagine you live in a society where you have written laws, but you also have your cultural stories, you have the wisdom of the elders, and all of these things are consulted, but not as the final authority, but as a way to help you get to a deeper authority, that is, God's justice. Law isn't the right word anymore. Yes, wisdom. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord, living in a way that corresponds to God's will. And the law for ancient Israel wasn't simply a set of things to do and not do. It was a relational agreement about how to be in a covenant with God. The laws are a relational authority for ancient Israel, and they were to be formed by that relationship and to take on the character traits of God's justice and generosity and character so that other nations could look at ancient Israel and be like, whoa, that's a different way to be humans. So today we discuss the difference between statutory law and what we'll call common law. It's a subtle difference, but it will help us appreciate how to read the laws in our Bible. It was a paradigm shift that's been immensely helpful for me in understanding what the Torah is and the laws within it. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. We are talking about laws, biblical laws, the law code yes. in the Bible. In the first few books of the Bible. Yeah. Yep. yep. They're all in the first five books of the Bible. Yeah. And actually, they're not in the first book, Genesis, mm. in the second, third, fourth, and fifth. Yeah. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'll find them dispersed yes. throughout those books. Yes. Over 600. There's over 600. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had a really great conversation on um, why do we have all of these laws. Yeah. And I think the takeaway was, well, we can know for sure that the reason wasn't to give a complete list of laws to live by. Yeah. Of God's will for human life. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not designed that way. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. If that was its purpose, it failed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about problems in the law codes for readers, ancient and modern. Why the same principle or law will be worded in different ways Mm -hmm. or sometimes contradictory ways. Mm -hmm. Do you boil the Passover lamb (laughs) or do you roast it? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the Sabbath or do you keep the Sabbath? (laughs) That's a smaller smaller one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
But it's just interesting that why would if you're going to repeat a law, why wouldn't you repeat it? Correct. With the exact same words. Correct. Yeah. It to be crystal clear. Yeah. And then we talked about this this rabbinic tradition of both trying to distill mm. all the laws mm-hmm. into kind of this mm. smaller set of axioms or values or whatever yeah. that helps you understand all of the laws. And then also the rabbinic tradition of taking a law that doesn't seem to explain enough yeah. of what you need, like the Sabbath, yeah. and yeah. then expounding on it, yep. creating more law. Yeah, Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here are a handful of perspectives. It'll probably take us a couple episodes to kind of talk through these. But I found these immensely helpful to just let each one of these, there's six uh, individual perspectives, but they work together. And if I was going to try and recreate the journey I've been on over the last many years in understanding how laws work in the Bible, mm-hmm. it, it's bound up in these six statements or perspectives. These six perspectives helps you understanding what the laws are, why they're in the Bible, and how I should relate to them. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yep. There you go. Number one. Number one. We've already kind of established this, but we'll just make it clear that the laws, the 611 or 13 mm-hmm. laws, are not a law code. Yep. They're not a code. Meaning? Meaning uh, if, if we went down to uh, the courthouse, the mm-hmm. Portland courthouse, yeah. where you go to serve jury duty and mm-hmm. all these things. So there are judges and actually, I don't know if they're, maybe they might be housed in the state. There's a like a, a research library a consulting library mm. there mm. where cases can be paused and judges and attorneys can like go consult the law. Mm. Most of it's being digitized. Mm-hmm. Actually, most of it's probably already been digitized. Sure it is. But the, in other words, the law code, the law code that governs our land mm. is the actual body of written text mm. <laughs> that is somewhere that is to be consulted when judges are applying the law. And you're saying that the laws in the Bible are not that. Correct. But they are written because they're written in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're definitely written. Totally. They're written in in a section of the Bible called the law. They're written in a section of the Bible called Torah. Torah. In Hebrew. Which you could translate as... Which means instruction or teaching. Teaching. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Importantly, actually, importantly, there isn't a Hebrew word that quite precisely corresponds to our word law. Mm -hmm. The words in the Hebrew Bible are custom or practice, instruction or teaching, command. Um, the closest would be statute, which means something inscribed. Mm. But but even all those are different than our concept of law. Mm. I, actually, I should probably work that out mm. at some point. I haven't taken that one to the bottom yet. Mm. But the point is, is that the, whatever the first five books of the Bible are, they aren't an ancient version of what judges consult on the digitized law code of the statutes of the state of Oregon or United States. Now, arguably, did that exist? Uh, we're going to, yeah, actually, I'm going to show, gonna you, I'm show you pictures of one. <laughs> hey. Well, actually, sorry, the simple answer to your question is no. Oh. Those didn't exist in the ancient world. Yeah. And for an important reason, because our concept of what a law code is in our day is fundamentally different than how they conceived of laws and codes in okay. the ancient world. But All we'll right. get there. Okay. So if the laws aren't a comprehensive code, what are they? What are they? Well, the narrative presents them as uh, the terms of a covenant agreement between two parties, mm. namely Yahweh and the people of Israel. In other words, the Torah is a narrative 
about God entering a formal relationship yeah. with a group of people. Yeah. And these laws in the narrative are the terms of their agreement. Okay. Now, it just feels like we're just, this is semantics now at this point, because huh. Huh. the terms of an agreement yeah. that have consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't call that law in English. Yeah, we would. Really? What would you call that? If you and I formed... Oh, okay. Let's say you and I started a nonprofit together. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'll stretch, maybe, maybe, stretch my imagination. Uh, yeah, maybe if you... But let's say we wanted to formalize... Uh, it doesn't work for a nonprofit. Let's say we started a for-profit. Okay. And we wanted to formalize whatever, how our relationship works and who does what and mm, whatever. And we're going to agree on it. Yeah, we might call them stipulations. Mm. Yeah, what do you call those? Um, well, I mean, we were just looking at these the other day during a board meeting. It, uh, there's, uh, what do they call them? Oh, uh, we call them bylaws, yeah. which is how the Bio Project board the rules of operation. Yeah. So if we have a, a whole society of people and we're agreeing, this is how we're going to live together. Yeah. That's the only agreement is we're going to live together here in a way that's hopefully peaceable. And so we call those rules law, commonly in English. That's the law. But if two parties intentionally form a relationship to accomplish a goal together, we wouldn't normally call the terms of the relationship laws. We would call them... Bylaws. Terms. We would call them stipulations. We call them bylaws? Well, yeah. Look at this. Um, I just Googled it. Hmm. Uh, The main difference between a bylaw and a law Hmm. is the law is passed by a national, federal, or regional state body. Mm -hmm. Bylaw is made by a non-sovereign Ah. body uh-huh and it derives its authority huh. from another governing body oh i see so if we were just kind of like uh we're going on a hike and we're going to be we're going to be on this hike for seven days let's huh. let's create some yeah let's create some rules rules of the road rules of the road yeah yeah, yeah. let's agree on like what our relationship's going to be like for yep. these seven days yeah that's right you wouldn't call those bylaws because we're no. not adhering to yeah correct we're not being governed by correct and we could write them out and sign on them this is very common <laughs> very common in hiking no just in like <laughs> day-to-day life yeah two neighbors yeah want to uh overlap their property to make a common deck or something okay. yeah. and so r- write it up write it up i had to buy a used car recently yeah and so they did a couple repairs we had to write up a terms of them guaranteeing now, those all, repairs. all these and, terms drive the, their authority the, from another group. But the authority, I guess the authority in a covenant relationship is... Is the relationship. Is the relationship itself. Yeah, not some, some yeah. bigger... And usually the... the Yeah, exactly. The, okay. The, that's the difference. That's the difference. What, who's, what's the authority? Correct. Is the authority some governing sovereign mm-hmm. body, uh, yeah. meaning yeah. a group of people yeah. who... I'll say that that they exist as some Correct. state yeah, or that's nation. Right. Mm-hmm. Or is the authority yeah. just merely... But that is a type of relationship. <laughs> of I'm co- sorry, this is getting No, really... no, of course it is. I guess here's the difference. Um, I live in the state of Oregon. Yeah. There is a number of governing bodies that have determined what are the laws of the land yeah. that I try my best to abide by. Yeah. There's the city of Portland. There's Multnomah County. Totally. There's the state of Oregon. That's right. And then there's the federal And if I go to whatever, the state capitol or the courthouse in Portland or log in online, I could find that law, those lists of statutes written that have been authorized. And that's a law code. It's a law code. Okay. When I open up the first five books of the Bible, I am not reading a law code. Yeah. 
I'm reading a narrative about one party in the ancient world, mm -hmm. the people of ancient Israel, entering into a covenant relationship with the deity. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the laws the are telling, illustrating yeah. the terms of the agreement between these two parties that I'm not one of. Yeah. I wasn't at Mount Sinai. Yeah. It's a narrative about a covenant relationship. That's what the Torah is. It's a narrative about a covenant relationship. And that narrative is very instructive for me. <laughs> yeah. That's what the word Torah means, instruction. Yeah. It's a paradigm shift. Yeah. The laws are not a law code. Right. The Torah is not a law code Got it. for all people of all time. It's a narrative about a covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And the laws, there's a lot of them, but they're not comprehensive. They're selected to match the numerical value of the word Torah. <laughs> and they illustrate the nature of their covenant relationship. That's the first key paradigm shift I invite people into. So for me, okay, I just want to make sure I understand this paradigm shift. In the same way, if we were to write a story mm, about mm, how mm, all the Oregon mm, laws mm, came to be, or mm. kind of the like the big... The big grand, like how, why do we, why does Oregon exist, and why are these these laws? We we could we would tell the story. We would then pull from the law code, uh, right? Yes, specific laws that yes. would would yep. help us understand the story. And if we wanted that to be instructive for the mm -hmm. now, what does it mean to be an Oregonian? Mm -hmm. Then we have something more similar. Yeah, that's right. To the Torah, correct? Yeah, it's not the law code. Yeah. Yep. Correct. The law else. code existed and exists somewhere else for some other purpose. This is a narrative. I liked your hiking example, actually. <laughs> if you yeah. and I went backpacking yeah. and we wrote up a two-page agreement yeah. about who gets the water at mm. the end of the day, mm. um, who cleans the dishes after dinner, yeah. who cleans How up, many miles we'll hike in a day. How many miles we hike in a day. All right, we write it all up because yeah. we've learned that we're like, whatever, super contentious and like, <laughs> have to make this clear. And then... Let's say we both live in the state of Oregon, and so uh, we are inspired by some of the laws of the land. Like, mm. oh, you know, one of the laws in Oregon is people do this, people don't do that. And so we use wording and concepts from our state law code, and we borrow them and adapt them in our little formal agreement between us. Oh, okay. And then if one of us was to, years later, write <laughs> a narrative <Yeah. laughs> about our hike... <laughs> And include large selections of our formal agreement in the narrative itself. That would be more like what the Torah is. So you're saying that the original set of terms of this covenant mm -hmm. even itself isn't a law code. Ah, well, we'll talk about that. Okay. The, per, the what, How law worked in the ancient world and what law codes were is okay. different, totally different than our culture. My point here is just what is the Torah, the five books of yeah. the Bible in front of us? Yeah. They are a narrative about a covenant relationship. Yeah. They're not a law code. They're a narrative about a covenant relationship. Yes. The covenant relationship had terms. Correct. Those terms mm -hmm. we call laws. Common English, yeah, yeah. or bylaws. Well, I'm just <laughs> saying when we talk about this whole series is how to read the law. Oh, I understand. Yes, yeah, so got That's it. the word we use. Yeah. Should we stop calling it that? Well, no, no, we should just use the word law. Okay. But it's covenant law. It's covenant law. Yeah. It's not law code yeah. in the way that we understand That's right. law code. So th after I use the word law the first time, I just swap it out for the word terms, covenant terms. Covenant. Then. So covenant law. And covenant law is different than law code. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like what the main difference, what I heard you say is that it's based on a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Both parties take it upon themselves to operate by these terms for the sake of this relationship. And I'm just going to be a jerk for a second yeah. and just say, isn't that what all law is? Yes. In a way. Okay. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, we agree to live in the city of Portland. We will live by these laws. and But a covenant relationship is specific and, you, you know, it's our covenant video. It's a partnership to accomplish something, a particular thing together. Yeah. Here in Portland, it's accomplishing what? The well-being? I don't, I don't know. My main purpose is to simply say the literary form of the first five books of the Bible isn't a law code. Yeah, that's, I get that. It's a narrative about a covenant, and the laws illustrate the terms of that covenant relationship. Now, I guess maybe this is where I'm getting up. Hmm. It's not a law code. It's hmm. a narrative about a covenant. Another way to say that is it's not a law code. It's a narrative about a law code based on a covenant. It's a narrative about a covenant that has drawn upon an ancient law code that is not contained within the Bible itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There have to have been more rules yeah. governing the life of ancient Israel. Yeah. Um, what we have are 611. I just hear you <laughs> trying, to make a, uh, mm -hmm. a, trying to make a difference between... Yeah. Covenant terms. Covenant terms. And law, co and okay. law code. Okay, got it. Uh, when, yeah. In my mind, they get too blurred too quickly. You're right. And you, yeah. What you're saying is they're basically, they're two subsets within the same type of group. Yeah. Which is the bigger group is. Just rules for governing common life together. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that sense, granted. I, it's like, <laughs> totally granted. You're right. So I, what you're asking is helping me clarify what my main point is and is not. There are laws within the covenant terms in the Torah that are verbatim uh, from other ancient Near Eastern law codes. Oh. Um, so what that tells us is uh, the way that um, through Moses and then the prophets and scribes who shaped the Torah after him, mm -hmm. the way they conceived of God wanting them to live fit within the ancient cultural context. Interesting but also adapted it in an important way. That's a later perspective. So, okay, first point. Not a lot of code. Not a lot of code. This is the, the narrative design shape of the covenant-making ceremony mm. in the book of Exodus. So when they leave Egypt and they go to the foot of Mount Sinai, that's mm -hmm. Exodus 19. Mm -hmm. Exodus 19 through 24 is where the Ten Commandments appear, and it's the, where they sign on the dotted line to like enter the covenant. Mm -hmm. The narrative of six chapters are designed in this real precise symmetry. On the outer frame is chapters 19 and 24. There's all this verbatim language, but in chapter 19, they approach the mountain. Mm -hmm. Moses goes up and he invites all Israel to listen to my voice and keep my covenant. Mm -hmm. That's the opening lines. Mm -hmm. Listen to my voice, which is the Hebrew word for obey. Yeah. There's no word for obey. It's just listen. To listen. So listen to my voice and keep my covenant. And Israel says, all that Yahweh has spoken, we're going to do. And Yahweh comes down and he reveals. This is the I do in a marriage ceremony. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, and then the next thing is the cloud and fire comes down the mountain and God speaks the Ten Commandments. Then you get a little narrative at the center of this whole section about how the people don't want to go up the mountain. Mm -hmm. They say, we're going to die if yeah. we go close to God. Yeah. So Moses, you go up for us. Yeah. He goes up on their behalf. And, and that's right in the center. Of that's this. right in the center. 
And then you get the next body of covenant laws, uh, 42, the 42 laws. In both the Ten Commandments and in those 42 laws, mm-hmm. the first command is... Don't, don't make any other gods. Don't have any other gods and don't make any idols. Yeah. Moses comes down after getting the 42 laws and it's the same divine appearance of cloud and fire. Moses writes the scroll of the covenant. The people say the same thing they said in chapter 19, all that Yahweh spoke and we will do. Yeah. So this is the first revelation of law mm. in the story. Mm. Yeah. It's the Ten Commandments and the laws and it's sandwiched in between in 19 and 24 mm-hmm. a covenant actual ceremony mm, yeah so my point here is just that even the first time laws are introduced in the narrative yeah. it's in a marriage ceremony yeah between yahweh and israel yeah so that tells you the purpose of the laws yeah they illustrate the terms of the covenant relationship If Israel obeys these terms, the opening prologue to the covenant in Exodus 19, we've talked about this before. This is where we get the phrase kingdom of priests. Mm -hmm. So if you, this is Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, if you listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then result, if you listen and obey, it's a condition. (laughs) If you listen and obey, then you'll be my own possession among all the peoples. Because listen, all the earth is mine. So I, I could choose a lot of different people here, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I chose one people. Yeah. But you're only going to fulfill your purpose yeah. if you obey the covenant. Yeah. If you do, then you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We made a whole video about this in the law video. The kingdom of priests is about being sacred representatives to yeah. the nations. Mm-hmm. So there you go. The laws are a relational authority for ancient Israel and they were to be formed by that relationship and to take on the character traits of God's justice and generosity and character so that other nations could look at ancient Israel yeah. and be like, whoa, that's a different way to be humans. Yeah, that's cool. That's the idea. Now, that's the purpose of the, of the terms of the covenant, mm-hmm. which is synonymous with law code in a way. Mm-hmm. Or with law. So to go back to this American thing, like life, liberty, Mm. pursuit of happiness, Mm. all of our laws Mm. are for that purpose. So for Israel, Mm -hmm. it's to be a kingdom of priests to then show the world the the nature of God. And I mean, this whole recreation. Yeah of the world yes for america it's hey let's uh, let's have life liberty and pursuit of happiness Mm -hmm. so there's a kind of a parallel there but what Mm. we don't get in the torah Mm. is then the whole list correct yeah we get a sampler we get the sampler yeah and it's couched in the narrative yeah that's right of yeah of how it came to be and and the significance of it that's correct we actually watch the ceremony yeah you watch the what yeah and then you get to hear some of them correct and then yeah Mm -hmm. yep that's the feel and of course, 
a lot of the rationale for the selection of the laws, like in both those cases, the Ten Commandments and the covenant laws, both begin with the first command as don't have any other gods and don't make idols. Yeah. The first narrative after this mm-hmm. wedding ceremony is the story of the golden calf. Yeah, <laughs> right. So they're designing it mm-hmm. so that you can see yeah. that the law isn't going to be upheld. Correct. So in other words, this is going to be a, a later perspective that we'll get to. But this narrative about you and me going on a hiking trip and agreeing to the terms of our relationship yeah, and including even specific of the rules in the narrative that we've agreed to. To imitate the Torah, our narrative would then have to go on and tell story after story (laughs) of how you and I violate the agreement. (laughs) The story would be like, so Tim and John, they wrote out a list, and the first thing on the list was don't wake each other up (laughs) until 8 a.m. Yeah, that's right. And the first morning of the trip, John got up at 6.30 (laughs) and started Yeah. Just singing and yeah. clanging pots. Pelting Tim with pine, <laughs> pine cones. <Okay>. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would, that's what the narrative would be like. In which case, again, you have to back up and you say, what's the purpose of this narrative? Yeah. Is this narrative trying to tell me that I'm supposed to obey all these laws? And if I'm going to go on a hike with my friends, mm-hmm. yeah, am I going to then go and just mine all the laws? Yeah. And then now yeah. those are our... Yeah. Hiking rules. Yeah. So, yeah. So at that point, I just want to say, let's just stop and be patient. Let's let the story tell itself. Okay. Let's try and understand how laws worked in the ancient world, how laws work in this narrative, uh, and then a cl- clarity emerges. Yeah. But that's the first paradigm shift, terms of the covenant. Yeah. It's not a law code. It's the terms of the covenant. Another helpful way to see how the Torah is not an ancient law code Mm -hmm. is to compare it to actual ancient law codes. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Like we have them. They've uh, been discovered. And so this is wonderful because it's like, oh, not only is the Torah not a law code, it's a narrative about a covenant, but if we wanted to see what an ancient law code looked like to compare to the Torah, we have them. Hmm. And there's the most famous one. Actually, I don't know how famous it is anymore. Hmm. Um, it's called the Code of Hammurabi. Yeah. I only know of it because we've talked about it. Oh, really? Well. Never heard of it before? I may have, hmm. but I never really became in any way familiar with it hmm. until we start talking about it. All right. Well, there you go. Let's talk about the Code of Hammurabi. 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 So in 1901, um, there was an Egyptian Egyptologist, mm-hmm. <laughs> an expert in ancient Egypt named Gustave Yekier. Uh, he's French, and he found this huge basalt stone pillar in Susa of what was then called Khuzestan, which ancient Khuzestan is in modern-day Iran, mm. southern part of modern-day Iran. So this is massive stone. It's like over six feet tall. Okay. It's big. And 
if you look, the, the length of the pillar is mostly just written in this ancient cuneiform script. But at the top of it is a picture. And it's a picture of uh, a king, Hammurabi, on the left. He's standing. Yeah. And he is approaching the throne of uh, a seated royal figure who's a god, a deity. Mm. And actually, just notice, this is related to our other conversations about spiritual beings. Mm. But notice that the deity, whose name is Shamash, which is the word sun. Hmm. Oh, like the S-U-N. S-U-N, the sun. So he, he is the sun. He's the sun god. He's the sun god. Notice that seated Shamash, the sun god, is as tall as Hammurabi is standing. Mm. <laughs> he's a giant. He's a big dude. He's oh, a, he's a giant. He's a giant. Oh, yeah. Deities are giants. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's what Shamash, he's handing to Hammurabi. He has a ring and a staff. He has fire leaping off of his shoulders. That's how you know he's Shamash, the sun god. Oh, yeah. And he's handing to Hammurabi a ring and a staff, which are symbols of divine royal authority. Mm. So it's a picture of, imagine this is propaganda you put of yourself if you're a king. Mm. I got this stuff from I've been commissioned by the gods to rule the world. Yeah. Here's an image of it. Here's an image. <laughs> <laughs> Happened. Yeah, totally. Look, yeah. <laughs> Look it's proof. <laughs> and so here's the prologue. Here's, here's like the first words. When lofty Anum, king of the Anunnaki, and Enlil, lord of heaven and earth, the determiner of destinies of the land, they determined for Marduk, the firstborn of Enki. These are all gods, different coalitions of gods. Mm-hmm. He made a great kingdom. He made Marduk great, and he called Babylon the kingdom's name. So in other words, this it, it begins with a story about how Babylon, the kingdom over which I reign, is mm-hmm. established by the most powerful gods mm-hmm. out there. So this law code starts with a narrative, too. This law code starts with a narrative about how the gods founded our kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yep. He made Babylon supreme in the world, established for him in its midst an enduring kingship whose foundations are as firm as heaven and earth. That's handy. When the gods start a kingdom, they mm-hmm. appoint a human king. Mm. And at that time, Anum and Enlil, who established Babylon mm. and the kingship, they named me <laughs> to promote the wef- welfare of the people. Me, Hammurabi the devout, the God-fearing prince, mm. to cause justice to prevail in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evil, that the strong might not oppress the weak, to rise like the sun over humankind. Stop. These are the words right below a picture of the sun god. Of Hammurabi being commissioned by the sun. But now Hammurabi himself is to be the sun rising over the land. Mm -hmm. Think of Genesis 1 Mm. in terms of the sun, moon, and stars rule Mm -hmm. over the day and night, Mm. and then humans rule over the land. Yeah. The suns are a sign of God's power. The humans are an image of God. We're in the same thought world here. Yeah, but in the lo- the Hammurabi's law code, the sun is the god, not a sign. Yeah, that's right. God. Yeah, and yeah, and here the sun is a deity. The sun is the deity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Genesis one, the sun, moon, and stars are created beings who are images of God's glory. Yeah, and so are. So are humans. Here, the sun is the ultimate god. Yeah. And he only appoints one human. Mm. In Genesis 1, all humans, all humans are yeah. the image of the divine ruling. Yeah. Right. Here, there's one deity, the sun, yeah. appointing one human, yeah. the king, to light up the land. Hammurabi, the shepherd, called by Enlil, 
the one who makes affluence and plenty abound. Yeah. The one, and this is important, the one who relayed the foundations of Sipar, the ancient temple city, mm. who decked with green the chapels of Aya, mm. the designer of the temple of Ababar, which is like a heavenly dwelling. Mm. So the gods have appointed me. And I created the temple. And the first thing I did was rebuild the ancient temple city and build the temple itself. And by the way, the temple here on earth is like the heavens. Yeah. He makes the heaven, the temple uh, an image or a mirror of the heavenly temple yeah. of the gods. Same thought world. Totally. Of biblical authors. Yeah, totally. So then what he says is, this is top of the next page, is uh, when the god Marduk commanded me to provide just ways for the people of the land, appropriate behavior, I established truth and justice, I enhanced the well-being of the people, and then what begins is a list of 282 laws. Hmm. And these laws read a lot like the laws of the Torah. Hmm. Here, I'll, I'll just let you read a couple. Number 196. <laughs> if a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroys the eye of a free man or break the bone of a free man, he shall pay one gold mina. Mina? Mina? If one destroys the eye of a man's slave or breaks a bone of the man's slave, he shall pay one half of his price. Yeah. Okay, so let's pause. Yeah. Eye for eye. Yeah. Right? There's a very similar law in, in the Torah. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound. There's a price in the Torah too, isn't there? Totally, yeah. This is called, it's called damages, mm -hmm. where if yeah you injure somebody and they're laid up for a while and can't work, mm -hmm. you pay them damages. If you injure somebody's slave, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Yep. Number 250. Yes. If an ox gores to death a man while it's passing through the street, that case has no basis for a claim. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, dude. So if you're ox. It's an ox. Stay out of its way. Yeah, totally. But keep next next one. Oh, 251. If a man's ox is a known gorer. <laughs> yeah. If it, if it did a, a second time or a third time. Uh, okay. And the authorities of the city quarter notify him that it's a known gorer. And he's not blunted. Yeah. He doesn't. He hasn't shaved off the horns. Yeah. And that ox gores to death a member of the... Ooh. A Wheelu class. A Wheelu class. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to look them up. The Wheelu class. Then the owner shall give 30 shekels of silver. That's how much that's how much a person's life is worth. It's great. I mean, it's very practical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, What's the Wheelu class? It just says a, a person of standing. I think it means a citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, again, the reason here is there's a whole section of laws... In the covenant code in Exodus that about, we just read. Yeah, goring. About the goring ox. Ox, yeah. yeah totally. Which apparently, I mean, if, in farming communities, of course. Yeah, you're going to have ox cruising Cru around. Totally, yeah. It's a common problem. Yeah, spear you through. Yeah. And so if it's just a one-off, you know, then sorry. Sorry that happened to you. <laughs> but if it happens a second, third time, then you yeah, get and it. The, yeah, the ox is a problem. Yeah, totally. So it's just a sampling. But these are three good examples that show like, yeah, these are formed in exactly the same vocabulary mm. as the laws of the Bible. Yeah. Okay. You finish the 282 laws and here's the epilogue. Okay. May any king who appears in the land in the future at any time observe the pronouncements of justice I've inscribed upon this statue. May he not alter the judgments I've rendered or the verdicts I gave, nor removed my engraved image. If any man has discernment and is capable of providing just ways for his land, may he heed the pronouncements I've inscribed upon the statue. So here's a law code. Yeah. 
it looks like a law code. <laughs> yeah. It presents itself. There is a little narrative. Yeah. But it's just it's a foundation narrative to tell you why this is important. Why this you're hearing the word of the gods. Mm. And then it presents the list and then it ends with a little warning to any leader after me should do this. And was this supposed to be uh, an exhaustive list then? Like Ah, uh, we'll talk about that. Oh. But let's just here's here's what an ancient code looks like. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the Torah. Okay. Right. Yeah. The Torah doesn't look like this. Yeah. What it looks like is that the Torah is a narrative about an ancient covenant and that the authors of the Torah have selected mm-hmm. certain laws out of a pre-existing kind of law code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know if there was <clears throat> ever some sort of statue with laws on it or written of some sort of exhaustive mm. thing mm. like this. Mm. Okay, this is interesting. After um, Moses is about to die and he commissions Joshua, he says, when you go into the land, after you make your first settlement, find a huge rock mm-hmm. and make a pillar, cover it with plaster and okay. then etch into it the words of the Torah. So he tells him. And then there's a narrative in Joshua about Joshua doing this. So the question is, what did he write? (laughs) Uh, He almost certainly didn't write the whole Pentateuch. Yeah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Right. So what he's writing is some ancient version of the laws of the covenant. Yeah. That you could write on a standing stone. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what that is or have record of it. Mm. So there was, yeah, there was something, there was something out there that was drawn upon. Mm. But the point is, the Torah is a sampler <laughs> of something that preexisted. And if we want to know what kind of thing might have preexisted, here's the Code of Hammurabi. It's a wonderful example. Yeah, not only is it an example, but some of the laws, like those three we read, yeah, are very similar. Very similar to laws found in is- Israel's laws. Yeah. Okay. So here's here's uh, some puzzles about the law code. This is an episode about the Code of Hammurabi. Mm-hmm. But these lo- these um, problems with the code are helpful, I think, for coming back to the laws of the Torah. Okay. Um, this is from a scholar uh, named Joshua Berman, who's I'm going to be quoting his, his work quite a lot later on. He says, uh, this code is one of the f- most frequently copied texts from the ancient world. Hmm. Over a course of 1,500 years, the Code of Hammurabi was adopted by other kings, mm. recopied, new statues. Mm. I mean, this thing, this was like went viral yeah. in the ancient world. Yeah. <laughs> ancient viral yeah. law code. So we have dozens of copies from many, all throughout the ancient world of co- the Code of Hammurabi. Mm-hmm. We also, in ancient Babylon, um, the Hittite uh, kingdom, ancient Canaan, we have thousands of legal documents mm. that have been discovered, land agreements, mm purchase agreements, Mm. divorce certificates. Mm. So Joshua Berman goes on. He says, of the thousands of Mesopotamian legal documents in our possession, not one of them quotes from the Code of Hammurabi or any other code as a source of authority. (laughs) This is in spite of the fact that the Code of Hammurabi was esteemed and recopied for more than a millennium. (laughs) All of this suggests that ancient Near Eastern law codes were of a literary or educational or monumental nature rather than legal and judicial. In, in other words, whatever law codes were in the ancient world, they existed. Kona of Hammurabi is one of them. Yeah. What was their purpose or function? Hmm. Did they exist so that judges who yeah. are trying cases could go look at the 
pillar mm-hmm. and be like, what should I do here? Mm, law 253 mm. says this, and now I will apply that principle. That's how law works in our culture. Yeah. Law codes. Yep. That's, that's how it works. Yep. So he's just noticing, it's just interesting. We have thousands of legal records from the ancient world. Never once is any ancient law code quoted as a source of authority for the decision being made mm. in, in these thousands of cases. That's interesting. Hmm. What's also interesting is that in those legal documents, some of them are like a civil dispute about somebody hit another person or somebody. Some of them are about situations that are addressed in the law code. Mm -hmm. And there'll be decisions that were made that explicitly contradict or the money. Remember the thing of in the Code of Hammurabi was if somebody hits somebody's slave, they have to pay this certain amount, one gold mina. Mm-hmm. But then there'll be a document about a case where somebody did this, mm-hmm. and they'll get fined fifteen gold minas or mm. something. Yeah. So not only is are these codes never quoted in actual mm. law cases, they're not adhered to. There are decisions being made in law cases in Babylon that don't follow the code. So, so if they didn't use the code as the authority, yes, what was the authority? Exactly. That's the problem I'm trying to expose here. Yeah. <laughs> the rabbit hole goes a little deeper. Okay. If you're interested. Yeah. If I have your curiosity peaked. Yes. So here, it's at this point that scholars of ancient law have had to go through a paradigm shift that's still happening. I think Mm. it began in kind of the 1980s. Scholars of ancient law. Oh, totally. Very niche field. Yeah, it's totally a niche field. But these groups of people exist. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. So one of the godfather figures is named Raymond Westbrook. But essentially what um, we're up against here is that not all cultures have the same uses of law codes. Different cultures do different things with law codes. So this is from uh, a scholar of this niche topic Mm -hmm. (laughs) named Michael Lefebvre. Um, He wrote a a comprehensive history of how Israelites and Jews perceived the laws in the Torah throughout their whole history. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a fascinating book. Mm. But uh, he tries to help us see uh, the difference between what he calls a legislative society. Okay and what he calls a non-legislative society. You could also call it statutory law society, mm-hmm. and then a common law or mm-hmm. custom law society. Okay. And I, the, the difference is actually really simple. Hmm. In a statutory or legislative society, the law of the land is an actual written text that has been authorized by a body of people. Yeah. And both all the people in that land and the judges of that land their obligation is to the written text of the law. Yeah, and the the written text is the authority. Correct. And what the written text is, is an embodiment of some transcendent set of values of justice that we all adhere to, and this written text is 
the way we're going to embody it mm. here. Yeah. Uh, that's how most modern, at least democracies, work. Mm-hmm. There's a written yeah. text. Begins with the Constitution and yeah. all, all the way down. Yeah. So t- what we have to do is try to imagine a culture where things don't work like that. Mm. <laughs> we have to imagine where people who live in a society have a set of views about a transcendent concept of justice and goodness and righteousness. Yeah. But the written law codes are not the official statement. They are illustrations Hmm. written in specific times and places, Hmm. but no one written statement is the final arbiter or word. Hmm. It's a statement that participates in a long history of statements. There you go. That's the basic point. Therefore, in a common law society where the written law codes are illustrations of our actual values of justice, the law codes have all kinds of purposes, like Hammurabi's mm-hmm. is a great example. Okay. It's royal. What that is is royal propaganda. Right. Yeah. Um, for how the gods authorized me. Yeah. And here is a. They're almost like a statement of the values of my platform. Your platform. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> it's like a statement of Hammurabi's platform. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, another king. Came and so. Yeah. Go and ahead. And so in that, he's making a case for his authority and his platform and yeah. how he how society exists under yeah, him. Correct. But then he gets very specific he about like Super goring specific. oxes. Yeah, totally. Are you saying then mm-hmm. that the specificity mm-hmm. isn't to say this is how it will always be. The specificity is yeah. here's just an example. Here's an example yeah. of how this would come to correct, play out. Correct. And we know that ancient leaders of Babylon saw the Code of Hammurabi as an example because they didn't follow it. <laughs> but they still would follow the platform. They would follow the principles. The principles of the platform. Correct. But when it comes to actual detailed applications, they're not following the numbers, the specific amount, monetary amounts for the fines. And they're not even appealing to the code itself because their obligation isn't to the code of Hammurabi. Their just, obligation is to Shamash, the sun god. It just seems chaotic to me. Ah, right. all right. Uh, that's how it appears to us. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. then, like, I'm just some dude in some city hmm. run by Babylon or hmm. some, like, village or whatever. Yeah. Something gets brought to me because I'm, whatever, respected yes. or yeah. have some authority. And I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. 15 minas. <laughs> you 30. Yeah. And then it's like, what? It's like, the code says one. No, yeah. we're not even going to refer to the code. Who yeah. cares what the code says? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it becomes more fluid. More fluid. The, the law becomes fluid in its application. How else do you explain Moses telling one generation, roast the Passover lamb, <laughs> and then the next generation, boil the Passover lamb? Yeah, it's fluid. It's fluid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's funny. It it both makes sense. This distinction really helps, Mm -hmm. but then also makes me feel really uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it makes people who live in statutory law societies, it's a foreign way of conceiving of law and order. Yeah. It is a form of law and order. It's just a different form of law and order than we're used to. Right. Here's the thing, though. So, again, this is um, the scholar Joshua Berman. He wrote two books that have been immensely helpful to me. Um, one is called Created Equal. I think it's how the how the Bible broke with ancient political thought. Hmm. And what he's showing, primarily that book is reading the ancient law code, the laws of the Torah mm-hmm. in, in, in relationship of, to their matching commands and yeah. other law codes. Right. 
And he just shows how the social order being envisioned by the laws of the Torah was both recognizable to ancient Babylonians and Canaanites, Mm. but a total ethical revolution Mm. uh, towards a greater form of what we would call social equality Mm -hmm. between citizens. Yeah. It's really amazing. And sexes. Genders. And a lot of, well, uh, not so much on the gender front. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, his argument is actually being a woman or a slave in ancient Israel, you were better off than you were in Babylon. Yes. But you weren't. He wasn't completely equal. uh, That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little bit more. The other book he wrote is called Inconsistency in the Torah. Mm -hmm. Because these discrepancies between different laws within the Torah itself. Mm -hmm have been used to build whole models of critical views of how the Pentateuch came into existence, uh-huh. how the different law codes were produced by completely different groups who are, were at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And so what the Torah is is a collection of actually competing, what were competing law codes by oh. different groups in ancient Israel okay. have been combined into one. This is a, a view that's, that's out there. A, uh-huh. And what he's saying is that's imposing a completely modern Our perspective of concept of a law code onto this ancient law code. Yeah. Ancient law codes were fluid expressions of common law, which meant the same code can have what we perceive as a contradiction. Mm-hmm. But they didn't view it that way because yeah. law could be applied in different ways in different circumstances. Here's two illustrations that were helpful for me. So I, I didn't know this. This is like Joshua Berman gave me a education in like the history of law in Europe. Hmm. Um, hmm. Statutory law, uh-huh. where the law code is the authority. Yeah, it's a relatively modern invention in the history of the human race. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, specifically in the 17th and 18th centuries because in, you, in Europe, because you need kind of mass printing in order for it to really work yeah yeah basically it's this is that common law where we all just kind of have a set of agreements yeah they don't have to be written yeah we can write expressions of them yeah but no written expression is the authority right he says that kind that law can work in smaller homogenous societies hmm where everybody's kind of the same Mm. and we all have a really tight social web Mm. and have the same religious and ethical values. Mm. It's the perfect system. (laughs) And also it's a necessary system when not everyone can read. Yep. There's not a really good way to pass around Mm -hmm. written, Mm -hmm. like the technology just doesn't exist. Yeah, that's right. Of like mass production. Yeah, yeah, where's the written code and who can read it? (laughs) Yeah, so it becomes a more necessary way of of thinking about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he's, uh, he, Berman quotes from scholars who say, if you just trace the history of Europe, the rise of urbanization, the rise of immigration Mm. to large cities, Mm. more diverse populations in cities that have different value systems, Mm. and then the rise of the modern nation state, Mm -hmm. which redefined identity, not by ethnicity necessarily, Mm. but by land borders, Mm -hmm. the people who live in this land are now... It's a modern phenomenon. Totally. The modern nation state. So he said the modern nation state is actually, and urbanization is the 
really key in the history of statu- and, statutory law. And then the technology of... <clears throat> and technology of writing. Writing. Post-printing press. Yeah. So now you have different people who have different value sets living in the same city. Yeah. But we are citizens together. Yeah. And so the rise of statutory law is that here's the law code, and doesn't matter who you are, we do this law according to this law code. Yeah. That's the it's basic idea. It's interesting. When you give the history lesson... Yeah. It makes it makes a lot of sense, and my discomfort goes away a little bit because it just feels like yeah necessary. Yes, like this is how you yeah. would have had to yeah. do law. Correct. Um, yeah. And then I think about judicial law, and I'm like, oh wow, yeah, that is just yeah a modern phenomena. Correct. That now I'm importing back on the Bible. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's really. I interesting. had the same experience. It was yeah. just like, oh wow, it's yeah. like somebody exposing that you're in a fish tank, but you didn't know it. Uh. Swimming in a fish tank, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like you're a fish and you don't know yeah. that you're in a, you can't see the glass around you. And then someone points it out. And you're like, oh. It's, that's why my nose is all raw. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. So here's, this is fascinating. This is on the middle of page 11. This is a helpful illustration. So the point is common law societies flourished for most of human history. Yeah. Because they require smaller, pretty homogenous cultures where the common values are just assumed. You're raised into the value set by your parents and your community and your uncle. So in Germany in the 1800s, there was, I guess he was a professor of law and like the the godfather. Mm -hmm. His name was Karl von Sauvigny. He called this common value set, the Volk is German, the Volksgeist, the spirit of the people or the Mm -hmm. collective consciousness of the people. So a common law where no written code is the official statement, the official statement is Volksgeist, right? And so if you have a situation where social cohesion starts breaking down, it becomes more difficult for the law to be just what we all know is the right thing to do. So this is so interesting. One of Carl Sauvigny's most famous students was Jacob Grimm of oh, the yeah. Brothers Grimm. Oh, yeah. And he had, his brother was Wilhelm, the Brothers yeah. Grimm. The Brothers Grimm. Yeah, With totally. all the fables. Yeah, totally. So Jacob Grimm mm-hmm. of the Brothers Grimm was one of the most famous lawyers and scholars of mm. German law mm. in, in Germany in the early 1800s. Their whole project mm. of, the col- of collecting the folklore and the stories mm. of their people Wasn't just to like create children's books. Yeah, it was a project aimed at upholding the common law tradition. Yeah, they were collecting the what was the The Volksgeist. The Volksgeist. The Volksgeist. So think of all these stories: Cinderella, Mm. Hansel and Gretel, (laughs) Rapunzel, Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty, the Frog Prince. Yeah. So what they developed was a scholarly set of tools for unearthing the original form of these stories Mm. and also how they changed through time Mm. and then creating the official written editions of them. Mm. But why? Why did they put in all this work? They were trying to create the educational value code of German society in the Mm. 1800s, which begins with raising your kids. I mean, think about it. Yeah. What stories do we use to teach our kids what is right? Yeah. How do we create in our kids? Yeah the right sense of what it means to be yeah. a German. Yep. Yeah. And how we treat each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
so in the early, eight, I think it was 1812 through 1815, they created a big multi-volume edition yeah. of, of all the fairy tales. Yeah. The folk, sorry, folk tales. Yeah. Some of them are fairy tales, folk tales. Okay, this is fascinating. Maybe this isn't fascinating. I found this really fascinating. <laughs> um, again, this is uh, Joshua Berman. So he says, Jacob Grimm, the foremost student of Karl von Sauvigny, who was the founder of the historical school of German law studies. He believed that law must emanate from the mores, the social values of the people. And he initiated a vast effort to recover texts and traditions that reflect the values and principles of German culture. The Grimm brothers' interest in German folklore stemmed from a conviction that those specimens of culture, these folk tales, contain the remnants of German law and liberties. Mm. Judges should adjudicate, make decisions, on the basis of a range of customary law sources. What do judges draw upon when they make a decision? Not a law code. They could use a law code as an illustration, but also including proverbs, mythology, mm. folklore, poetry, and the like. Mm. This is fascinating. Jacob Grimm actually derived property laws <laughs> from some of the folk tales found in their collection. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, it makes sense. So, I mean, it seems like what's <laughs> happening is this is an example of this time in human history where we're moving from common law to statutory law. Statutory judicial yeah. law. Yeah. And the brothers Grimm are saying, hey, let's make this a really great transition. Yes. Let's take all yes. we've yes. discovered yeah. from all of these years of yeah. customary law. Yeah. And let's make sure that as we're making all this judicial law, that it's informed by it. Yeah. And so they are unearthing all of these fables. Correct. Which yeah. were what were used to help yep. make yes. the common law decisions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Again, th and this is helpful also to talk about the Pentateuch, the whole Pentateuch, the narratives and the laws as Torah instruction. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the Brothers Grimm viewed these folk tales as, instruction. as a kind of legal education. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, what we call narrative and poetry and law, <laughs> for them, those are literary distinctions. Yeah. But they're all aimed at instruction. instructing you in... What does it mean to be a yeah. German citizen? Yeah. Yeah. And the I Pentateuch pops into new perspective all of a sudden. Mm. Like the fact that it's narrative and poetry and law all in one book, but it's all aimed at instructing you in discerning God's will. Words to be made in the image of God. Yeah. yeah. And to be in the family of Abraham. Correct. Yeah. I think I feel the discomfort of many people when we compare the mm. Torah to <laughs> fables. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got it. This is just an analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not making that kind of comparison. Right. I'm just saying for people in in Jacob Grimm's time, where do you go to gain instruction in the ways of our people? Yeah, it's not a set of it's not statutory a, laws. Yeah, you, you can consult a law code. That might be one illustration. Uh, but you also go to our foundation stories. Yeah. You go to the stories we tell our children and yeah. raise them on. You right. go to poetry. Yeah. These can all become examples of the Volksgeist. The Volksgeist. That's a great word. And so in the same way, the Pentateuch, as a whole, not just the laws, but the whole, the narrative about the laws, e everything is a part of instructing you in the Volksgeist of yeah. the kingdom of priests. That's the analogy I'm making. E and yeah. even though we live mm. in a time in human history where judicial law is the norm, mm. we do live yes, yeah, day totally. to day yeah. more based off of custom Correct. Mary law. Yeah. Like we, yeah. in that last episode, we talked a lot about the hiking trip. 
yeah. would take and yeah. the laws would write. In reality, we wouldn't write a lock like some mm. sort of code. No, we just kind of know. We just know. There's, we, there's customary laws. There's stories of people who hiked before us and the problems <laughs> that they ran into. Yeah, that's right. There's just the the proverbs, yeah. just the wise sayings of Correct. like what it means to be a good person. And, yeah. and we just know all this stuff. And when something comes up, yeah. we're going to appeal to those things. Correct. You know, when I wake you up in the morning before yep. it's like the sun yeah. came up, you're just yeah. going to be like, Dude, what's the deal? Yeah, like, totally. we know we don't do that around we don't here. Do that right. That's not a thing you do. Um, and yeah. that's and that's just typically how we live mm-hmm. is yeah. based off of customary law. Yeah, and then when a custom is violated, you need to make it explicit. This is why the the list of rules at like public pools is so <laughs> yeah. long. You right. know, right? No running, no jumping, no peeing, no yeah. all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the and the only remember these are all things that we could all agree on. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That's right. But apparently some things were unspoken and then we realized, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, you shouldn't whatever do this in the pool. And so now we have to write the long list. Yeah. And then rules. it's funny where, like, you get the signs that used to just say no skateboarding and now it's no skateboarding, no rollerblading, no yes. yeah, totally. scooters. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. The custom behind that is like, yeah. you know, this is totally. just for pedestrians. Yes, and that's like, right. Let's not, like, destroy this Did property. Did you hear about the sign that our friend Ken put on the pool at his house? Yeah, I don't remember. It says, welcome to our ool. <laughs> There's no P in it. Yeah. And let's keep it that yeah, way. Yeah, let's keep it that way. That's good. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's very memorable. It's memorable. Like like a fairy tale. It's memorable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, okay. This is helpful. This is actually, this is the, we're still on the first perspective. It's the longest one. Yeah. Um, but it rounds off. It's, it's an inclusio with mm-hmm. the last one. Yeah. This is the way that the Torah came to be talked about in later Judaism as wisdom, mm. wisdom literature. When you get to the book of Proverbs, um, the Torah that is passed down from parents to children is equivalent with wisdom. Mm. The Torah, first five books of the Bible, are wisdom literature. Mm. <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense then, too, how the Apostle yeah. Paul uses it with, like, the Muslim yaks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we'll get to that in, at the end. But this is the groundwork of a paradigm for approaching the whole Pentateuch, not just the laws, but the whole Pentateuch as a kind of legal education. Volksgeist. Yeah, Volksgeist. Legal isn't the right word. Law isn't the right word anymore. Yeah. It's... Wisdom. uh, Yes, wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord living in a way that corresponds to God's will. Mm. And the point isn't to do what these characters do Mm. necessarily Mm. because they do a lot of horrible things. But watching the characters do horrible things is an education for me. Okay, this is super helpful. And I feel like it, w- it could take an entire video just to do that. make this yeah. shift. Yeah. From there, it feels pretty satisfying. Like we could just be done talking now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, obviously yeah. there's a lot more to talk about, but I mean, man, that's its own yeah. treatment. Yeah, totally.
Here, let's just, just so, can I take one more step? I know we're already yeah. well into this conversation. We can do this quickly. Okay. Do you remember those problems that scholars noted about the Code of Hammurabi? That even though it was copied and everybody read yeah, it. Yeah, no one, no one. People didn't quote from it or adhere to it. Yeah. Um, the same problem exists with the laws in the Pentateuch within the Old Testament. Hmm. First of all, there are different statements about what kind of judges should be appointed in ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. Here's two. One's in Exodus 18. One's in Deuteronomy chapter 1. What are the type of people who are to be promoted as judges? Exodus 18. Select out of all the people men who fear God. Mm-hmm. They're men of truth, mm-hmm. hate dishonest gain. Mm-hmm. Do you fear God? You have integrity and you, you won't take dirty money? Mm. Deal. You'll be a judge. Great. So notice no nothing about an expert in the laws of the Torah. Oh, <laughs> sure. It's just someone's personal character. Oh, interesting. Is what qualifies them to be a judge. Mm. Deuteronomy 1. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise, experienced men, appointed them as heads over you. I charged your judges. And what qualifies them? Last statement there. Don't show partiality. You'll hear the small and great alike. You don't fear humans. Where justice belongs to God. Hmm. You can just see it here. Hmm. There's nothing about legal education, uh, consulting written texts. Mm-hmm. And that could either be because it's taking that for granted. Could be. That's right. It could be. Yeah. But it's just, at least it's noteworthy. Yep. Here's another thing. There are narratives. This is on page 13 and following. There are all these narratives where, about actual like legal court scenes mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, and the decisions being made are either different from the laws in the Torah or contradict the laws of the Torah. Hmm. For example, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, after one of his sons, Absalom, has murdered his other son, Amnon, um, he's brought before the king, and David just excuses Absalom, contradicting every single law about manslaughter and murder in the Torah. He just, no, he doesn't even appeal to, I'm the king, Here's the law. My son's excused. You're just like, oh, that's interesting. So um, so maybe he's just not following the Torah. It could be that he's not following the Torah, but he's the king. Like, nope, there's no, yeah. nobody gets in his face about it. Yeah. There's no judges around going, no, what's written in the law? Yeah. Okay. Apparently, at this time in Israel's yeah. history, the king's word is the law. Yeah, right. Well, that's interesting. Kind of like the Code of Hammurabi, mm. where the, the gods appointed me. Yeah. And I determined... The most detailed trial scene in the whole Old Testament is in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is being tried before the leaders of Israel for announcing that the temple is going to be destroyed. Mm. And his defense, he doesn't appeal or quote from the Torah at all. Mm -hmm. What he quotes from is a story (laughs) about another prophet, Micah, Mm -hmm. who had the same message, and he never got imprisoned. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he's arguing not from a law, but from precedent. Which is, um, we do that too. It's case law. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then the arguments against him by the other attorneys, they never quote from the Torah. They just say he's speaking in the name of Yahweh, that the Yahweh's temple is going to be destroyed. They have a political accusation that he's prophesying against our city. Mm -hmm. It's the most detailed court scene in the whole Old Testament. And never once are the laws of the Torah pulled out or consulted Mm. or quoted. You just have to go like, wow. It's really interesting. Okay. 
And so when judges are praised, like Solomon, the famous decision he makes about the two ladies. Yeah, it's splitting the baby. Who are both claim the same baby as their son. Mm-hmm. So he comes up with a clever solution to get one to tell the truth. And then the quote at the end of that story is, when all Israel heard the judgment which the king decided, they revered the king because they saw in him the wisdom of God to do justice. Mm-hmm. So, so again, uh, it, they saw that he consulted the Torah. Yeah, and that's not what it says. No, it's he got an education in the Torah that trained him to become mm-hmm. wise, Yeah, to know how to make the right decision in this specific situation. So the Torah and its laws were a part of a much larger set of educational huh. tools yeah. in Israelite culture. Wow. It was a common law society. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Anyway, this was so, so helpful So these are all examples me. of common law in Correct. practice. Um, that's right. Mm, yeah. yeah. So this isn't just arguing from similarity with the Code of Hammurabi. This is within the Old Testament itself. Yeah. What do you see actually when you, yeah. in practice? It's it's. Yeah. Common law. It's com- it's a common law society. There you go. That was a long Yeah. That was a long conversation, but it was a paradigm shift that's been immensely helpful for me in understanding what the Torah is and the laws within it. It is helpful and it is a paradigm shift and it reminds me again of how cross cultural of an endeavor it is to read the Bible. Yeah, totally. Because we have these, yeah. we just have these very firm paradigms of what mm. is law mm. and how does a culture yeah. act in respect to law. Yeah. And for me, it's just like a no-brainer. Yeah. It's law codes. Law code. Yeah. And you go to it. What yeah. does it say? Yeah. That's the law. That's the law. Yeah. And if the Bible's not doing that, then the Bible has a problem. <laughs> 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 and I'm, yeah. I'm either gonna just yeah. ignore it or be conf- um, or be ashamed of it. Yeah. But we are travelers to another time and place when we read the Bible, yeah. and we have to. Yeah. We have to unwrap these yeah. paradigms, and um, that's a big one. That's mm-hmm. a really big one. Yeah. That could use its own treatment. Yeah, I see. Hmm. Is hmm. It, I mean, I don't hmm. know. Maybe you can do hmm. it in sixty seconds. <laughs> Maybe we can do it in 60 seconds. Yeah. John, you're good at explaining complex things in a short amount of time. <laughs> you're you're deer in the headlights right now. So this took me a few months to to really process and sort through. So I was reading. So, I, you know, you're doing this in like an hour. I bet we can. I, that little visual. Yeah. Podcast oh, yeah, listeners, visual, you can't. Yeah. But the visual that Michael Lefevre came up with in his book. Yeah. We're putting the show notes. It's, yep. But it's pretty, it's pretty helpful. Yeah. It, just, it just makes it really clear. Um, yeah. That the source of obligation isn't to a written text. Yeah. It's to a transcendent yeah. set of values of which the written law code is one expression, but so also can narratives and poetry and proverbs and so on. Yep. There you go. I I bet we can do that. Yeah. I bet we can do that. Yeah. The rest of the things, perspectives I want to work through will take much less time. But that is the biggest one. Okay. And I think it would be cool to capture that and a minute to three minutes. We could do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project podcast. Our video on the law is out. It's part of the How to Read the Bible series. You can find it on our website, thebibleproject.com, or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thebibleproject. Today's show is edited and produced by Dan Gummel. We're a nonprofit in Portland, Oregon. You can find everything we're up to at thebibleproject.com. 
Hi, this is Mateusz from Poland. I'm excited to be a part of making the Bible Project videos available in Polish. Thank you for your support and let all your friends know these videos are available. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. The Bible Project is crowdfunded and you can find free videos, study notes, podcasts and more at thebibleproject.com. Cześć, nazywam się Mateusz, a mieszkam w Polsce. Cieszę się, że mogę uczestniczyć w tworzeniu filmów The Bible Project w języku polskim. Dziękujemy za Twoje wsparcie. Przekaż wszystkim swoim znajomym, że te filmy są już dostępne. Wierzymy, że Biblia jest spójną historią, która prowadzi do Jezusa. The Bible Project jest finansowany przez wielu z Was. Możesz skorzystać z darmowych filmów, notatek do studiowania, podcastów i wielu innych na stronie thebibleproject.com.